Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a theoretical neuroscientist, entrepreneur and artificial intelligence guru who is seeking to use her expertise to help solve human problems. We need not only more responsible application of AI, understanding that real-world data is messy, and if we're looking at correlations, it's going to mislead us. But I actually think it's deeper and more fundamental than that. We need to understand how to actually solve problems before we think or allow the AIs to try and solve them for us. That was Vivienne Ming, who describes herself as a professional mad scientist. I caught up with her recently in London and asked her why she chose that particular epithet. Well, quite frankly, because we had a hard time thinking what the hell else to call myself. And we realized that at its heart, what we did was science, because we never know if it's going to work. And clearly what we do is mad because no one else is doing it. And this is at Socos Labs in California. Can you tell us what is the work that you're doing there? So after many years of being both an academic and then an entrepreneur, I was really confronted with what comes next and feeling that what I wanted most was to have a positive impact on people's lives. In fact, it's what I went to school for in the first place. So after collecting some advice from people, which was largely hire a social media manager, it may be true, but I just don't want it to be true. I decided to found an institute. It's something like a think tank, except what we do is we field requests from anywhere in the world, from parents with dying children, through companies worried of laying off employees, up through the United Nations, looking at global scale policy. And they ask us to help on problems that no one else can seem to figure out. And for the most part, By the good fortune of my life, we get to do it for free because I'll pay for everything. And are you using AI to solve some of these problems or how does it work? I got my professional start as what's called a theoretical neuroscientist. And if anyone in your audience had never heard of that term before, just substitute the word lazy for theoretical. (laughs) We make fake brains on computers and we study what they do. And we study brains to come up with better machine learning, which is a form of artificial intelligence. So... My whole career, starting 20 years ago, began with me doing real-time lie detection based on face recognition systems for the CIA. That's a great start, isn't it, It it was clearly morally gray, but for a kid, an undergraduate, getting their start in academics, to see that you could build these things and they could learn on their own to read expressions. And I'll say... I was able to take those algorithms later and build a system for Google Glass, the wearable computer, that would allow autistic kids to read facial expressions. In fact, when they learned how to read facial expressions in social interactions, they learned empathy as well. We use the same algorithms to reunite orphan refugees with extended family members. So, you know, I have this incredibly powerful tool. It's not magic. It can't solve problems that I can't figure out the solution to on my own. But boy, can it change the economics of those solutions and make it available potentially to anybody. So now when I go around the world and someone says, my child has 500 seizures a day, or my child has a life-threatening egg allergy, or we're the UN and our donors only give half the money they promise, 
machine learning comes up a lot in how we approach these problems. But I think that fundamentally, they're all human problems. They only ever have messy human solutions. This is just a very powerful tool for scaling those solutions. You say machine learning and AI are tools. What is the best way of conceptualizing this? I mean, what do you think that they can do that humans can't? And how are they going to be impacting our lives over the next five, 10 years? There's a variety of wonky, useless definitions I could offer to you of what AI is. So I'm just going to go straight to a very practical understanding of what AI means in, let's call it, the modern economy, which is imagine any brief expert human judgment, five seconds looking at a resume, a minute studying a spreadsheet to do a risk assessment, something you may not think of an expert judgment, but if you were autistic, you would, reading a facial expression. So it turns out all of those things, reading contracts as a lawyer, can be done cheaper, faster, sometimes dramatically faster, and increasingly better than a human can do it. So imagine a world in which all rote human activities, particularly highly paid ones, can be automated essentially for no cost. So if you're a lawyer and you earn almost all of your money by watching someone walk in the door and knowing I've got three will templates and this person is a class C, that job is going away. That is a fundamentally automatable task. Now, reading a complex contract, not simply for the busy work of finding all the loopholes, but then judging what to do about it, that is fundamentally a human judgment. And that's the interchange between AI and humanity right now. So we've had a lot of guests on the show who have been split in saying that AI is either going to destroy lots of jobs or it's going to be a net positive force and augment them. Which school are you in? Do you think it is going to cause lots of disruption, but if we manage it correctly, that we will be able to create lots of opportunities as well? Where do you So I think there's a classic misleading question here that came out of the Industrial Revolution, which is, will AI create more jobs than it destroys, just as the Industrial Revolution ended up doing? I'll note that the Industrial Revolution is, in my opinion, an N of one. And as a scientist, it's not a great experiment for us to extrapolate from. My favorite, in fact, cartoon of all time, because I'm an incredible geek, is two horses watching a Model T drive into town. And one horse says to the other, I'm not worried. The plow, the wheel, innovation always means more jobs for horses. (laughs) So past performance does not predict future returns. In this context, I actually think, will it create more jobs than it destroys is simply the wrong question. My best guess is it creates many jobs, and those jobs will be spread across a divide, one that we might call the creative class and one that is an enormous service industry, very low autonomy, low agency, low wage power. And on both divides, there likely will be many, many new jobs. The real question for me is... Where is that divide? Is the creative class, as it is today, a very small population of somewhere between 1% and 3% of the global workforce? Or do we expand it? And I'm not a utopian, at least, let's say, the very low double digits. Or do we simply consign a vast number of people, including, by the way, university-educated, very smart individuals, who still largely carry out rote tasks at work, just cognitively complex ones. How could we expand it? When we look at what actually 
predicts life outcomes. And this is one of, I think, the core natures of the work that I do is this field of understanding what makes a good life in terms of all the dimensions you can imagine, health and happiness, wealth and education and friends. What we see is it turns out going to university is not a particularly causal factor in those positive outcomes. Learning how to program is not a very causal factor. What really is predictive, and I, I'm quite a fan of this metaphor, is to understand the craftsman more than the tools. Our education system now for 200 years has done an amazing job of building tools and training people in them. And tools now incorporate the very AI themselves. They're not independent. They're tools. But in fact, what we know about positive life outcomes, what we know about entering the creative class, is it's all about the craftsman. Yes, a craftsman without tools is hobbled. So not understanding how to interact with the modern world is an impediment, and we need to train people. But tools without a craftsman is pointless. And yet, go read any of the hundreds of policy papers put out about the future of work and tell me whether you find the word person in it. They taught to talk about workers and skills, about reskilling and programming, but we're off endlessly fungible widgets. And because the economy will need creativity, we'll just magically self-actualize and become creative. And you don't have to study human beings for very long to realize what a foolish notion that is. So I kind of said on neither side, I don't think AIs have to destroy all the jobs and concentrate all the power in the hands of a very few, nor do I think that people will just magically, freed of having to pay their rent, freed of the burdens of the industrial economy, will all become artists and doctors. If you could point out to me the line trailing outside of every library all over the world, I might believe you. But we don't pay artists anything anyways. If you want to be one, you get to be one right now, and very few people are. Now, you referred earlier to AI programs as being expert decision makers. Expertise depends on the inputs which make them experts. Is there a worry that the inputs into these expert systems are really not what they should be? Yeah, so there's two takes on this. And I think the consensus view in the machine learning community, and one that has really entered the public's mind is, we need to understand the data that we feed into this thing. You know, 10 years ago, I got a call from the Wall Street Journal, and they said, Dr. Ming, Google just labeled a couple as gorillas, a black couple. Is AI racist? And my reflexive response was, it's the same as the rest of us. Depends on how you raise it. And it is true in that context that... Most AI systems are overwhelmingly trained on the job resumes, the images, the criminal history of certain classes of people, and they become deeply biased as a result. Here's where I break with the consensus. They've described a genuine problem. My response is that if our solution to that is we need to show our AIs a fantasy world to make them believe everything is wonderful and harmonious and black people are just as good as white people, then our models have failed because they should have been able to figure that out from the real world because it's already true. So the problem is, and forgive me if this gets a little wonky, the vast majority of relationships to be found in data are correlations, not causes. 
In fact, the overwhelming number in any real-world data set are just a bunch of spurious correlations that have nothing to do with what actually makes a great employee or whether someone committed a crime or not. And yet, modern artificial intelligence is dominated by those correlations. And so we're frequently misled. The most famous recent case was the AI system that Amazon tried to build for itself to improve hiring that turned out to be unfixably sexist. If you even had the word women's on your resume, it would downgrade the resume. And as it turns out, I had the chance years ago to tell them that that approach wouldn't work and they didn't take my advice. So we need not only more responsible application of AI, understanding that Real-world data is messy, and if we're looking at correlations, it's going to mislead us. But I actually think it's deeper and more fundamental than that. We need to understand how to actually solve problems before we think or allow the AIs to try and solve them for us. I was at the Open Data Institute where they were discussing the issue of algorithmic fairness, and there was a fascinating debate about its fairness to whom? Is it to the individual? Is it to society? Is it, in some cases, to the judicial system? These things might not be the same. So is it better to imprison people, even if 1% of them are innocent, because that's a benefit to society? Or is that an outrage, because if you're the person who gets jailed, clearly you think that is completely unacceptable. Is it possible to have algorithmic fairness in practice? So there's this famous theorem in machine learning uh, so now we're getting down to the math that's called the bias-variance trade-off. And it's not much of a metaphorical extension to infer from it that in any real-world condition, you can never have an unbiased system. Not AI, not humans, not rats. It doesn't matter. If it's making judgments in a noisy and uncertain world, it will always be fundamentally biased. Now the question is, is the brunt of that bias born unjustifiably by one group in society. If it can never be perfect, we have to just accept that fact, not trivialize it, but in fact engage with those imperfections. When my son was diagnosed with diabetes, in the months leading up to it, I was on Google every night Googling about bedwetting. Turns out that one of the most common symptoms of type 1 diabetes in little kids is prolific bedwetting because it's the only way they can get rid of all the sugar that's building up in their bloodstream. But I didn't know that, despite my very fancy-smancy degrees. So I was there searching. And in a funny way, I'm truly not calling Google out about this, but in a funny way, Google knew or could have known. I know this for certain because I work in this space. If they'd really wanted to, they could have sent me a message that says, you know, Dr. Ming, you might want to check in with your pediatrician. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Now, you can understand why they don't do it, because they could be wrong. And what would the liability of being wrong be? And what trust do they have? But what's interesting is so many companies have punted on that and simply said, you know what, we're not engaged with this at all. And you have to understand, that is a moral decision as well. That is a decision 
to allow some number of kids to die from ketoacidosis, from severe blood acidity accumulating from essentially them digesting their own body. And you could go through and look at suicide rates and all these sorts of things on social media. These companies actually care. They are genuinely running research projects internally. I know because I've collaborated on some of them. But turning that into public policy, turning that into a genuine opportunity for them to do what they believe is right as individuals and get around their fears as a corporation is truly challenging. I mean, Eric Schmidt, when he was at Google, famously said that their job was to walk right up to the edge of creepy without overstepping it. So had Google sent you that message saying you ought to check your son out, would you have felt that overstepped the edge of creepiness? Well, again... I am far from a normal human being. I have been tainted by having spent far too much time around cyborgs and being one myself. Having said that, that isn't the only response. Your child has diabetes or it doesn't, or our algorithm estimates a 71.2% chance that you should go see your pediatrician. Instead, for example, Google controls my newsfeed and could actually bias it towards salient, relevant stories to try and evoke that in me. It's possible to have a proportional response rather than it be all or nothing. All I really want us to do is to have a much broader and honest discussion that there will always be consequences. Such a system would be wrong. How does that morally justify not doing something when we know we could net save lives? And we could take that over time. Believe me, I've thought about it quite a bit. Let's just start the conversation and think where we could go from here. But I left another thread open, and we can take it in a slightly different direction, which is what are the new kinds of models that we could do that go beyond correlation and actually explicitly explore causation, whether because they learn from science itself or because we actually adopt some of what economists have now been doing for decades, which is learning how to leverage what are called natural experiments or pseudo-experiments to actually draw causality out of, for example, a temporal order of events. We could do this today. It's not a massive new discovery, but it simply has not been given enough attention by the machine learning world. Mm -hmm. Now, you were talking earlier about human biases, and you have a fascinating perspective on aspects of this. You grew up as Evan Smith before transitioning to become Vivian Ming. How were you treated differently as a man scientist to a female scientist? Oh, my goodness. So I don't hear that name so much anymore. But I was who I was. And I'll just throw this unasked answer into the mix You know, I've never felt that I was born in the wrong body or that I deserved some special treatment. Simply the answer to a very simple question, am I a better person? And I look at my life and the choices that I've made and the impact that I've had, and clearly I'm a better person as Vivian than I ever was before. But back to the core question, you know, it's salient. The differences between being a man and the woman in science, in the business world, and beyond anyone that thinks women are treated the same as men. I I don't know what world they live in, but clearly not mine. So the first is, I was an academic when I transitioned. I had a lab at Stanford and another at Berkeley. And the first day I showed up as me, which was a bit of a surprise to everyone, they only found out the night beforehand, was the last day anyone ever asked me a math question. Now, fair enough, I have a PhD in psychology, 
But I actually also did my work in computational neuroscience and invented several algorithms. And literally the day beforehand, that was what people cared about. And then afterwards, I was the house psychologist. And, you know, just simply walking down the street and having men catcall you for the first time is truly a jaw-dropping experience. And then when I raised money for my first startup and the enormous effort it took to get them to believe, not simply in my technology, which nobody questioned, but in me as a business leader. And again, anyone thinks it's the same for men and women, I would like to ask all the male entrepreneurs in the audience whether they have ever been patted on the head by a venture capitalist and told, you know, you should be really proud of what you've done, who then voted not to fund your company. The degree to which you are treated as a favorite little niece who's putting on a performance is shocking. Now, it's also true that once you start making money for people, that's what they care about. And whether it's a woman or a true freak, a transgender person, in the end, People know that I can solve problems, and that's why they give me a call. One of our previous guests on the show was Dame Stephanie Shirley, who I believe is an inspiration to you as well. And she said that when she was starting in business, she had to go by the name of Stevie Shirley because in order to get business, she had to persuade people that she was a man and that her company then was a fantastic success. And at that point, it, as you're saying with the kind of VC capitalists, it doesn't become such an issue. Is that your experience? It's both my personal experience. I mean, listen to the story I just told about being patted on the head. Go watch her TED Talk titled, Why Do All Ambitious Women Have Flat Heads? You may be able to do the math right there at home at the moment, but it's a great talk. So, you know, I've had an amazing privilege because I walk in the room with some very fancy degrees and a lot of proof backing me up. But along the way, I've had the chance to also run some very large-scale numbers on exactly these questions. I was the chief scientist of a company called Guild that was one of the first ever doing AI and hiring. And at one point, there was this breaking uh, hot blog post by a guy named Jose in the United States who claimed that he took the S out of his name and became Joe. And suddenly, everyone gave him jobs that they weren't offering before. And again, much like with the Wall Street Journal and the call I got about bias at Google, they called me up and said, Dr. Ming, is it at all plausible, this man's story, that Joe is getting job offers that Jose isn't? And what I really want to do is pull my hair out because there has been decades now of research on exactly this question. Yes, Steve is treated as more competent and more dynamic and more accomplished than Stephanie for exactly the same resume, for exactly the same work history. So I thought, why don't I do this differently? Instead of running an experiment, I'm going to pull out every actual Joe and actual Jose working in the professional world in my giant data set. And what we found was there is a measurable and salient economic difference. For example, in the tech industry, Jose typically needed a master's degree or higher to have the same probability of promotion as Joe for the same quality of work when Joe had no degree whatsoever. So you can actually work the math out there. That's six years of salary opportunity cost in the tech industry, plus in the States, six years of tuition. And when you aggregate across all the possible universities and jobs and so forth, it roughly comes out to three quarters of a million dollars just because your name is Jose. 
So yes, it is not just plausible, but demonstrable that there is a tax on being different. And in fact, that tax, when played out in the world, does all the same things that any tax would do. It's a disincentive. It's an impediment to economic growth. It comes with compounding interest. It's a phenomenal thing that we have decided that we won't confront these problems earnestly and honestly when it actually costs all of us an enormous amount. So we rightly worry about the consequences of algorithmic bias. But what you're saying, in a way, is that AI systems can also be fantastically useful for us to de-bias humans. Previously, at the White House, they ran these horribly titled programs called Data Jams and Data Paloozas. And I would get these invitations to come to the White House and participate. Strangely enough, my invitations to the White House seem to have gotten lost in the mail for the last two years. I'm not certain what's happened. But back under the Obama administration, I'd show up and work on these. And one of these projects was jointly with the Office of Personal Management, OPM, essentially the HR department for the U.S. federal government. As you might imagine, that's a big HR department. Six million employees, 20 million resumes go through the system every year. We built a little tool that color-coded resumes based on the viewer's past hiring history bias, not idealized bias. When we actually look how their past hiring history played out in the internal performance of the employees. Now, needless to say, those internal performance measures are themselves probably biased. But, you know, in ways we just have to take what we have. The number one example of what we call positive bias, which is you're over generous, an Ivy League degree. If a resume had an Ivy League degree, it always appears in red. Does that mean that if you went to Harvard, you weren't qualified? No, it's just saying it gets overweighted by every recruiter in the system. The most common negative weight is given to a female name. Every recruiter, including women, undervalue a female name just because it appears on the resume. So what we built was essentially a pair of glasses to correct people's own vision in their decision making. They still make the decisions, but now they have immediate feedback about how those decisions actually affect the organization. That's a great thing, clearly. So Vivian, you've written and spoken very interestingly about how technology, when it is first adopted, widens inequalities. Is that going to be true with AI? And if so, what can we then do to reduce the inequality? It's an interesting thing. So many people go into things like educational technology and even into the field of artificial intelligence believing that they're doing good and usually doing good for the most marginalized people in the world. And yet, not for a fundamental flaw of technology, it does the exact opposite. Because as it turns out, the people that are able to take the most benefit from technology are the ones that need it the least. So if I event this amazing educational technology that could potentially change kids' lives, you have to understand, I then put it in the app store, assuming that some mom in a township outside Johannesburg, whose grandmother washed some white woman's clothes her whole life, whose mother washed some white woman's clothes her whole life, now it's 20 years post-apartheid, and that's her job too. She fully understands that her daughter can be anything. But why would she possibly believe it will come true? Why would she invest her time, her money, her effort 
and to going to the app store and dealing with all the bandwidth problems in her local community and a very expensive phone that is likely held by dad most of the time and actually leverage this technology to make a difference. It is so much easier for my kids with two scientists well off in Berkeley, California. We will always make more use of this technology and extract more value from it. So that's similar to the idea that drugs only really get developed to tackle rich people's diseases. How can we democratize AI then? So I think one of the things we have to be is stop solving AI problems and start solving human problems. So if you think you're solving a human problem, when in fact what you're building is something that's only going to be useful to your friends or your kids, then you haven't actually solved a human problem. And that is such a constant issue. We have talked about trust in technology and trust in elites. And I look at the stories around Facebook. You know, this was something that was invented essentially so that kids at Harvard could get laid. And then suddenly it seemed like it was going to change the world, literally drive revolutions, maybe even displace the idea of government itself. And yet we found out that what it really is doing is replacing zoning out in front of a sitcom. That when you put an EEG on someone on any social network, not just Facebook, they look like they're about to go to sleep. There's no deep processing going on. It's the disconnect between what we want people to do with technology and what they actually end up doing. And if you've ever built a tech company, you realize that is actually the fundamental problem of building a product is no one ever uses it the way you wanted to. So study the problem. The main reason innovation fails isn't the limitations of technology. It's that the people didn't actually understand the problem they were trying to solve. Thank you very much, Vivian. It was a tremendous pleasure. Thank you. We often conclude by asking our guests three rapid-fire questions, the first of which is, which do you think are the most overrated or underrated technologies? Well, goodness, this is easy. Blockchain is far and away the most overrated. I've never seen a technology so desperately in need of a problem to solve. <laughs> okay. Second one, what is the greatest threat to the technology industry at the moment? I think people losing faith in it. The degree to which we've already seen a decrease in trust in what are called the elites, the human elites, I think will be paired very strongly with loss of trust in technology itself and innovation. These things are supposed to make our lives better. And then it turns out all these amazing transformative technologies, search and AI and social networks, are in fact making our lives worse. And genuinely so, measurably worse. And final question, what book would you recommend for people who want to understand this modern world of technology without it being a technology book? Without it being a technology book? So I can do a plug here. I have a book coming out called How to Robot Proof Your Kids. But if you want to go get some books today, I think there are some that are wonderful. And even though I disagree with large sections of it, the Second Machine Age, I think, is a wonderful book on the impacts of technology and AI specifically on society. I just think they're a little too sanguine about its implications, but at least it will frame some of the issues really well. Well, I hope that's inspired you to contribute to our informal survey. If you'd like to join the debate, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, 
take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.